Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. Glad to be here. Glad to have you, Alex. We still don't have Haley with us this week. She's out sick again, so we're wishing her some healing thoughts, but uh, plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about, and I wanted to start. um, I'm a man of my word. I was popping off on Twitter the other day about something I said we would talk about on the show. Uh I'm speaking, of course, this is many days old at this point, but I do want to hold to my word here. Amber, I presume you saw the tweet about the implications of blending all 7.88 billion people on Earth into a fine goo. Did you see this? I did indeed see this. And for people that maybe didn't see this uh, discourse on the internet, there were some great graphics of a human goo ball in comparison to the size of buildings. Well, it's in, it, it was nestled in Central Park. It sure was. What we're talking about is a tweet from a, a woman who, according to her bio, is a Canadian astronomer who graduated from McGill. I don't even know how serious this is, but she wrote, and, and, and I quote, if you blended all 7.88 billion people on Earth into a fine goo, you would end up with a sphere of human goo just under one kilometer wide. Here is a visualization of how that would look in Central Park. Um, and it's a huge, it, it looks like a meatball. It's a huge meatball sitting in Central Park. It's a huge meatball, but it's every human. And so there was part of me that was like, huh, I thought it would actually be more than that. Well, and I promised a legal analysis here, and I have to I say- I can't wait for this. The legal analysis is ongoing. Uh, I'm still conducting interviews, but I just wanted to at least consider the questions that are at play. First of all, there's the matter of blending humans into goo. Illegal. Now, well, let, let's consider this. I mean, you know, if you, certainly if you did it without their consent, Highly illegal. I mean, that's not even. Well, you're not going to get all almost eight billion people to consent. So there's some illegality for sure. And even if you could, who would blend them? Let's cons. Well, my God. Well, that's like now you're talking practical logistics. <laughs> sorry, challenges. sorry. That's a whole other thing. Consider the uh, consider the conviction of Jack Kevorkian. These are people who asked him right. to kill them, and he still went to jail for it. Then there's the matter of placing a, an enormous orb of human goo in a public park just creates numerous like public nuisance concerns. I mean, we Lots don't even... Lots of public I mean, nuisance. And then depending on... They did place... This was placed in Central Park, so that would be public. But if it touched any private property, that's going to create all sorts of trespass issues and things of that nature. So depending on exactly where it's sitting. The park is not zoned for that either. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, I guess you could get, like you say, if you get some permission from the government, from the parks department, go crazy with the goo. Anyway, the goo analysis continues. Again, uh, I just stand by, it's probably all legal because no humans are left to fight about this. That's a, you know what? I hadn't thought about that. Kind of a metaphysical quandary. There you go. But yeah, pressing questions. Uh, I will keep you updated <laughs> as to my very serious research project here. But uh, as you said, there is a lot of news to get to. So we should probably, uh, uh, we should probably get to the actual news not related to that other stuff. Yeah, I mean, a bit of a hard pivot here, but we do have on our own reporter, Jack Queen, a little later in the show to talk about some continuing claims related to the terrible abuse that happened at the hands of Larry Nassar to U.S. gymnasts. There's some continuing legal fallout there, and Jack does a great job explaining exactly what's going on at this point, even though Nassar himself has already been convicted. Yeah, the focus is now shifting to basically what we talked about with Jack is 
oversights by the FBI and federal law enforcement in sort of not, you know, taking action sooner um, and allowing the abuse to continue basically through a combination of like sort of incompetency, dishonesty, et cetera. Super interesting story. And Jack did an awesome job breaking it down for us. So stick around for that. We do have some news to get to before then. And I wanted to start with a really interesting dispute, uh, squabble out West. We often tell stories, feature stories here on the podcast about judges being disqualified or recused from high stakes litigation. That always kind of, it's a very buzzy story. You know, people are always interested in when gambits like that pay off. But today we got something a little bit different um, as a California federal judge has removed one of his own law clerks, not, not recusing himself, one of his clerks from a patent case between Google and the audio tech company Sonos. It's very unusual, and it kind of ties into some broader concerns that have been raised about the federal judiciary. Um, so I thought we should uh, talk about it. I mean, clerks, it feels like law clerks are all the rage right now in terms of fulcrums of big stories. Like, did they leak something from the Supreme well, Court? Yeah, yeah. Um, Are they causing trouble in a giant IP trial? What is the problem here? Like you, like you said, it's unusual to hear about a clerk being recused. That's strange. Yeah, I mean, and I want to, I want to kind of emphasize this would be definitely a curious story that we would talk about anyway. But it happens to feature some big time players, which I think is increasing the amount of eyeballs here. Um, as I already mentioned, Sonos is suing Google. Um, so those are two huge companies for the infringement of patents related to cloud based music streaming and managing playback devices. That is sort of Sonos's entire business model. So it's a it's very high stakes patent litigation we're talking about. They're set to go to trial in the fall. The case is also being overseen by Judge William Alsup, who we is sort of the the chieftain of California tech litigation. We've talked about him on the show before. So there's no shortage of real kind of legal star power here. Yeah, it's all the key big players that you'd want to hear mm -hmm. about in this, which, you know, I think that probably means there's a lot of heightened feelings even among those key players. It's a big suit, big companies fighting it out, big yeah. judge. But this actually starts with Alsop himself, right? The, the potential troubles that spawned out of this case. Yeah, so the whole, the whole kind of Michigas here started during a status conference last month. Also disclosed to the to Google and Sonos that one of his clerks owned some unspecified amount of Google stock and had actually worked for the company uh, some years prior. The judge basically he also told the parties that the this clerk's stock had been placed in a blind trust about two weeks earlier as an attempt to kind of head off whatever's going on with a potential conflict here. And that, as you can imagine, set off just a, a flood of filings from Sonos. They demanded more information about the identity of this clerk, the nature of his work for Google, how long he had had this stock. The company also filed a brief that flagged some case law suggesting that both the clerk and Alsop himself could be recused or disqualified from the case. Though, importantly, it stopped short of ever actually filing a formal motion to recuse him. Still, they, they, they did this sort of somewhat passive-aggressive, like, we're really not happy about this. They, they continued to press the issue. They said they learned 
They, they had learned that the clerk in question worked with senior members of Google's legal team at Quinn Emanuel, which is the firm that handles a lot of Google's IP caseload, including in this very case, the Sonos case that we're talking about. So clearly they weren't happy, even if they didn't formally go for a, a recusal here. Yeah, that's a really interesting pedigree for this law clerk, too, because as we've said, like Alsup is the judge that gets a lot of these tech company suits. So you can imagine Google may be in his courtroom for any number of things for years to come. So that's yeah. that's an interesting wrinkle here. Yeah. And, you know, it ended somewhat unceremoniously. There was a very brief notice filed last week and also said that the entire case had been transferred to a different law clerk. But it, it raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, I did a little bit of research, and I, including talking to Andrew Strickler, who wrote the story for us. And he and now I can't say with certainty that this has never happened before, a clerk being moved off, off a case for conflict reasons. But it's certainly rare. It's at least rare for it to spill into public this way. Sonos, in its brief that I mentioned before, did cite cases that tied the disqualification of judges to conflicts deriving from their clerks, but didn't mention the specific recusal of a clerk. Strickler also noted uh, in his story that this comes a few months after that Wall Street Journal report about judges' failure to disclose certain financial yeah. interests in cases pending before them. And that set off this firestorm of briefings and recusals and kind of after the fact, like, oh, yeah, I should disclose. I have this amount of tech stock in this company that argues before me. And, and in this case, you know, this is about a clerk and also kind of he, he disclosed it himself after learning about it. But you have to wonder, I was thinking about potential kind of ramifications here. You have to wonder if this won't gin up some kind of gamesmanship by litigators to do what effectively amounts to oppo research on the backgrounds of clerks, you know, making sure if they ever worked for you know, firms that are, or companies rather that are, you know, actively arguing for the courts they now work in, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that would be a, such an interesting new world, right? Where it maybe would have, if that became commonplace, it would have downstream effects on the clerks that judges would take into their courtroom. I mean, they might be like, oh, you're going to be a real problem. You worked at litigants that come up in my courtroom all the time. I'm not going to be able to give you those cases. That could be a problem too. Yeah, it's a different kind of iteration of the conflict of interest discussions right. that we have like in various areas of law where it's like this this fine line between like, obviously you want people who are experts in and, and are well-versed in this type of litigation that inherently sometimes includes working for companies that engage in this type of litigation and then like how close do you get to the rail and all of that. Um, so like I say, this specific dust up has now been quieted, but uh, the, the implications I think are, uh, are quite interesting. So for our second news story, I want to stick in the realm of unexpected things or unusual things because- sure. This week, a Manhattan federal judge declared a mistrial in the criminal fraud case against a Colorado man who was charged with basically looting about $25 million from a fund that was supposed to pay for the border wall. Uh, love a good mistrial. You don't get them a lot, right? I mean, it's usually on TV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not as many in real life. Yeah, right. Yeah, you don't see that every day. And that the, the circumstances surrounding this mistrial are particularly interesting. But catch us up here. I have some vague recollection of like, the defrauding of the public, publicly sourced Build the Border Wall fund. But catch, yep. catch me up here. What was going on? Yeah, and I will tell you the moment when I know exactly why you remember this. Um, 
So <laughs> okay. the man who was on trial here is Timothy Shea. He was charged with two counts of conspiracy, one count of falsifying documents related to an alleged scheme to pocket money that was ostensibly raised for the border wall between the United States and Mexico. It all started in 2018. There was a GoFundMe campaign called We Build the Wall. Shea and some others promised donors to that campaign, and they promised them this repeatedly, that all the money was going to the actual mission of the group, which was to build the border wall. And here's where I know that this is why you remember it. Uh, yeah. If this sounds familiar to any listeners, it's because at one point, one of the co-defendants was former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon. And Bannon was pardoned by then-President Trump for his role. Two other mm. people were also charged in this um, alleged scheme. They pled guilty in the run-up to the trial. So that's why we're focusing just on what happened to Timothy Shea. Okay, so that gets us a little bit caught up here. What now? I'm not an expert. I only report on this stuff, but it seemed like such a slam dunk uh, thing when this case was first rolled out. It seems pretty, you know, if you ask for millions, if you raise millions of dollars to build a wall, the wall never gets built and you pocket the money. Seems fairly straightforward. What evidence were prosecutors working with here? The prosecutors also thought the evidence was very straightforward. So, <laughs> yeah. According to the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. In 2019, Shea got wind of a federal investigation centered around how the wall money was being used and, and if somebody was siphoning off some money there. And he sent um, a series of fearful texts to his alleged co-conspirators. Again, text messages get people in trouble. This, this comes up over and over. It again. does. Yes. So he got spooked and he basically sent text messages worrying about even prison time. One of the prosecutors in this case flat out called these texts a smoking gun. Get out the bleep button for me, producer Kelly. Um, here's one of the texts. We need a solid plan. Otherwise, we go to prison. <laughs> so it's pretty straightforward, right? According to the feds, at that point, he also allegedly backdated a contract to make the We Build the Wall group look more legitimate. There were a bunch of other texts that were also presented at trial. There's one where he first, after he'd first realized about 40,000 people had sent money to the GoFundMe, he wrote, holy shit, and talked about how he didn't expect this big windfall. His wife actually uh, texted, referring to the campaign as a gold mine. <laughs> um, so th there was a lot of back and forth presented at this trial. The defense counsel, of course, sees this differently. I mean, do you want to be fair and say how they... Um, defended Shay. They said that he was unsophisticated in how to handle a fundraising effort that took off so quickly, um, sort of portraying these as hyperbolic texts, not actual, like, we're fraud defrauding people, and arguing that some of the money he took was a loan and it was going to be all be paid back, and that the group did, in fact, send money to wall building efforts. So that was, you know, a little summation of what the defense had to say. Setting aside legality for a moment, it is always very funny to me. Like, I mean, there, there's a common fact pattern when stuff like this happens where people are like surprised that their attempts to cynically exploit partisan politics like actually get them money. The idea of like the wife saying, honey, I mean, check, check out all this money just rolling in here. What are we going to do with this stuff? Are we going to do what we said? Or are we going to do something else? Questions persist. So where does the, where does the mistrial come in? Yeah, this one's, uh, I really want to dig in here because there's so many interesting details. The jury actually deliberated for six days and couldn't reach a verdict on any of the three counts. It apparently got pretty contentious during those deliberations. Our own Pete Brush had a lot of really interesting reporting about this case, including a story about 
some notes sent from the jury room to the judge. The most interesting is a note describing a male juror who was largely seen as unwilling to accept the evidence prosecutors put on as true and basically called a bunch of his fellow jurors biased. It's sort of wild, so I'd actually like to tick off a few things that were verbatim from the four-person's note to the judge talking about this male juror. The first one is a quote. Tim Shea is a good man. He doesn't beat his wife. You can't just vote to lynch someone. Allegedly, the male juror said that. Jeez. He called other jurors liberals. He said that they brought the, quote, hangman's noose to court with them. He called the case against Shea a government witch hunt. He said it was full of political bias, and he refused to accept the veracity of anything that the government presented as evidence. So that's what was going on in those jury deliberations. Well, he's clearly a fan of hanging metaphors. There's there's a couple of them there. Not even metaphors. He just just says it. He said it. I mean, you know, I guess... What I what I consider to be slam dunk evidence uh, is no match he for an obstinate juror. Like, That's so. right. That's pretty much what happened, Alex. It does seem like it came down to an obstinate juror. The judge repeatedly asked the jurors to keep trying to reach a verdict. But eventually the jury reported out, quote, we've gone to extreme depths in granular detail. In doing so, it's abundantly clear that we are even further <laughs> entrenched in our opposing views. So they had to the say of- <laughs> very clearly, like, we can't do this. The, the idea of working at it and actually getting further apart, uh, the humor is not yeah, lost right. on me there either. Yeah. Right. So, like, we almost got him. Actually, no. We no, never we're got worse close to getting than ever. Yeah. This was all confirmed, too, because Pete did some reporting after the case was over and the mistrial had been declared. He talked to some of the jurors and they said that at least 10 people were in favor of convicting. One was a little bit on the fence, so it could have gone either way. And then there was this one man who was staunch as a holdout and made it absolutely impossible to reach a unanimous verdict. One juror described the male juror this way, quote, it was incredibly frustrating. It was like talking to a wall. We didn't want to <laughs> give up. Our theory is he's just kind of playing devil's advocate for attention. Mm. As for the juror himself, the the man that was this holdout, he also spoke to Law 360 and said that he had reasonable doubt. And he stressed that he was surprised the suit was held in, the trial was held in Manhattan. The reason for this is that, you know, despite the fact that at the trial, there was evidence shown that thousands of New Yorkers supported this wall fundraising effort. The male juror said he thinks the case was strategically brought in Manhattan because the feds know, quote, people here vote differently. Hmm. This 12 Angry Men reboot sucks, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, It's a very modern retelling of that movie, for sure. Yeah, uh, very befitting of the uh, cultural moment. Um, so what happens now? We got a mistrial. Are they going to, they're just going to start over, I guess? What? what yeah, they are just going to start over. I mean, sometimes when you get a mistrial, a prosecutor will reevaluate and decide not to proceed with the case, but that is not what's happening here. The prosecutor said the government will, in fact, retry this case, and we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But they specifically said in some of their statements that they think the evidence is still very strong, and that this was just an unusual recalcitrant single juror. So they're going to bring this back into court. The 
legal fallout from Larry Nassar's horrific sexual abuse of gymnasts took a new turn this week as more than 90 women who said they were abused by the former USA Gymnastics team doctor moved to hold the FBI accountable for botching the early stages of its Nassar investigation. The claims add to growing scrutiny over law enforcement's purported oversights that allowed Nassar to evade scrutiny for years before he was eventually convicted. But the victim's path forward is murky, butting up against legal protections for federal law enforcement. Here to talk us through the story is Law 360's senior reporter, Jack Queen. Welcome back to the show, Jack. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. I'm so glad you're here to talk to us about this, even though it's certainly not a pleasant story to talk about, but it's an incredibly important one. So I just want to get us kind of oriented here. I think some people have some institutional memory of what went on with Nasser and these various kind of legal proceedings and investigations that unspooled. Get us, get us situated here. What do we need to know? Yeah, well, uh, he's serving an effective life sentence right now. I think it's something like 120 years. He's believed to have abused uh, something around 265 of his patients under the guise mm-hmm. of medical treatment. Uh, and this went on for a very, very long time. Our story with the FBI begins around 2015. And that's when the Los Angeles and Indianapolis field offices each received separate tips that uh, Nasser was abusing his patients. Now, they both investigated somewhat, but they didn't get very far. Both of them determined that they didn't, la- they lacked jurisdiction because these weren't federal crimes. And that's fine. It's, it was better to prosecute these under state laws. The problem was the critical error they made was they both dropped their investigations without informing the local authorities who would have had jurisdiction to investigate these mm. crimes. The result was that um, Nasser was able to abuse an additional 70 or something patients until 2017, when finally, acting on a separate tip, local police in Michigan investigated and swiftly arrested him and brought him to justice. So normally you would imagine when Nasser himself is in jail and that aspect of this has been resolved, in some ways you'd think that's the end of the story. But I know that's not true at this point because of these claims about the investigation being mishandled. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Well, like I said, uh, they they basically dropped the ball completely. And to make matters worse, so after this happens, after Nasser is arrested, um, the media and the DOJ itself start asking around saying, well, wait a minute, Uh, this was on our radar. How did we miss this? This is the biggest sex abuse case in generations. How did we end Mm -hmm. up leaving it to local police in Michigan? And uh, so the DOJ opens an internal probe to the Office of the Inspector General. And uh, what this probe ends up finding is that to make matters worse, the head of the the Indianapolis field office and the lead agent in charge of the investigation there both ended up lying to internal investigators to cover up their many mistakes here. And those included things like, for instance, the lead agent on this case in Indianapolis, he interviewed several gymnasts, including Michaela Maroney, And she gave some pretty heart-wrenching testimony after this report was released, describing how she was sitting on her bedroom floor, divulging the details of her abuse for over an hour to this FBI agent over the phone, telling details that she hadn't even shared with her parents or anyone else, trusting that this would be worth it because it would help bring an end to this abuse and prevent other people from being victimized. Imagine her horror upon learning after this report was released that that agent didn't even produce a full summary of the interview, had only a single page of handwritten notes, and then didn't produce a full summary until internal investigators came knocking about a year and a half, two years later, 
going off of memory and that one page of notes. And his final report was riddled with inaccuracies and possible fabrications. Um, so that, of course, was a pretty shocking revelation. Another is that that head of the FBI field office in Indianapolis, he retired before this report was released. But while this was all going on, he was actively seeking a job with USA Gymnastics as director of security. Oh, wow which is, of course, a glaring conflict of interest. I mean, while his office is supposed to be investigating Nasser, he is literally out getting beers with the head of USA Gymnastics talking about a potential job, which is, of course, a glaring violation of the FBI ethics rules. This is obviously incredibly salacious stuff, and that kind of forms the basis of the like legal action that you wrote about this week. I mentioned it sort of up top here. This is a new set of claims that's filed by more than 90 of Nasser uh, victims. What is that action? What does it look like? What is it seeking to do? Sure. So uh, to unpack it a little bit here, these are not lawsuits yet. These are actually, you cannot sue the federal government directly. It has sovereign immunity, but there's a law called the uh, Federal Tort Claims Act, which provides an avenue for people who have been harmed by federal agencies to get compensation. It's pretty simple. The way it works is you file a claim directly with the agency saying, here's how I was harmed and here's how much money I think I'm entitled to. This kicks off a six-month process that uh, usually involves settlement negotiations between the government and the parties. Um, and if they can't reach a resolution in that time, then you can sue. And mm -hmm. typically the government will fight these things. Um, in this case, we have, as you said, over 90 victims who are seeking a total of more than a billion dollars. There's also another group of 13 victims who uh, filed similar claims a couple of months ago. And so typically what happens is the government will fight this. The six-month clock will run out, then it goes to litigation. And when that happens, the government will claim that the conduct at issue falls within one of these range of exceptions in the law for things that aren't covered by this. So is the government fighting here? Um, do we know anything about that or... Is the Justice Department involved? Are they looking at what the FBI did? What's happening? It's very, very early stages here. Um, so the the women submitted their claims, I believe, yesterday is when the FBI received them. Uh, FBI is part of the DOJ, um, and also the DOJ will it represents any government agency that gets served with these claims. So the, it'll be DOJ lawyers who are examining these claims. We don't know. Um, it's interesting because we, we don't know if they're going to fight it yet, because the interesting thing here is this is an extraordinary case, right? Yeah. Uh, there is immense public pressure here. I mean, when you look at just the scope and nature of Nasser's crimes is horrific. The number of victims involved is staggering. It includes gold medal gymnasts, national icons who have delivered this wrenching public testimony about their abuse. And then you also have the scope of the FBI's uh, misconduct here is staggering as well. And lawmakers are furious about that and the public is furious about it. So that amounts to some enormous public pressure on the DOJ now, uh, different legal experts I've talked to are dubious that they would actually cave to that pressure and settle early. But again, um, I, I think there is strong pressure because at the end of the day, Merrick Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland could direct his civil division to just settle these cases and do right by these victims and make them whole. But um, there are some interesting uh, legal things to discuss if you'd like. Yeah, if the DOJ does fight this. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to highlight this uh, point about public pressure first, because there certainly will be some. But I know you're doing follow-up reporting today strictly on the legal questions, um, and you're talking to a lot of experts. If the DOJ does take 
an adversarial posture here. What are the chances of claims like this succeeding? Well, in years past, they would have faced quite an uphill battle here. Um, It's difficult to beat the government when they contest these claims because there are a lot of exceptions to the Federal Tort Claims Act. And uh, in particular, when it's related to law enforcement, there's a couple here that are particularly relevant. One of them is that it does not apply to discretionary actions by federal employees, which basically means judgment calls. Uh, And Mm -hmm. if if there's not a specific statute or policy that requires them to do something very specific, then it doesn't count. And of course, the decision to investigate and ultimately charge a person certainly falls within the realm of judgment calls. The other that applies here, potentially, is this requirement that it has to be conduct that you could sue a private citizen for. So in this context, that could be tricky for them because there isn't any civil suit that you could bring against a private citizen for failing to investigate a crime and arrest someone. Yeah. But here's the, here's the twist. A couple of years ago, there was a very important ruling in a very similar case brought by the families of the survivors of the, or of the victims of the Parkland shooting. Now, this was a fairly similar set of facts. Uh, the FBI, before the shooting, had gotten very credible tips that Nicholas Cruz, the shooter, had been posting online about how he aspired to be a school shooter and so forth. And the FBI basically didn't really do anything with it. And so these parents in the aftermath um, filed these claims saying that if the FBI had followed up on this tip and done its job, our children might still be alive. And of course, the government mounted its typical defenses. I think I just outlined what those are there. And the court ultimately sided with the parents saying, no, actually, under good Samaritan laws, a private citizen who had this information would have been obligated to do something with it and could have been held liable under good Samaritan laws if they didn't. And um, so that was kind of the basis of the court's decision there. And reading through that opinion, um, I, I can't help but see tons of parallels here. And, you know, while that's just a district court opinion in Florida and there's no telling where this case would ultimately be brought if it does go to litigation. Uh, but in talking with the attorneys for the victims here, um, they're they're very confident that that ruling uh, would give them a pretty strong leg to stand on. And if uh, the court decides um, or applies similar reasoning, then that could be another sort of bellwether case that really shifts the goalposts here in terms of people's ability to collect on claims of this nature related to federal law enforcement. It's a tremendously important story, and we are so grateful to have had you on to talk us through. We'll, we'll definitely uh, keep an eye on it as it, uh, as it progresses. Thanks so much for joining the show, Jack. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. show is something offbeat. And this week, I just want to read a headline that I really respect. I thought this was pretty great. Top Gun Maverick flies right into IP danger zone, suit says. Listen to me very carefully here. Hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's what I have to say about this. Top Gun is extremely important to me, Amber. This is just something to know about me. My parents used to say Top Gun was my first babysitter. I would put it in the VCR, and literally just watch the thing all day. There exists a picture of me as a small child sitting cross-legged in front of, like, inches from the TV screen wearing 
a little Maverick jacket. The, oh, uh, the, yeah. the, uh, the like fleece collar jacket he's got on. So this First is about the new all, movie, though. Yeah. I mean, I did not know that story about you, Alex. I didn't know how much you loved this. But if you had asked me before this recording whether or not you loved Top Gun and it was a touchstone for you, I would have guessed yes. I, I yeah. just knew this would be right. I mean, I'm writing the demo. So anyway, this is about the new movie, which I saw on opening night. It is one of the most formative experiences of my life. <laughs> tremendous, tremendous entertainment. Okay, so full disclosure, just for the purposes of the rest of this conversation, I am actually seeing Maverick uh, in like two days. So don't spoil it for me while we talk about this or for our listeners that haven't seen it. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I can say I too loved original Top Gun. So I'm right there with you good. on that. I don't like when people jump down people's throats for like not seeing a movie or not seeing a TV show. I understand that people are busy. There's a lot and of like, content. And, and there's and a lot of content, whatever. Having said that, Amber, what are you doing with your life? I mean, this movie's been out for two weeks. So. I know. I am seeing it with a group of friends. So, I mean, okay, it'll be a okay. fun time. So, that, in well, fairness. Well, let's that, get to the but... lawsuit. Let's get to the okay. lawsuit, though. So, What's here's something. I don't know if you realized this, Alex. You maybe did since you were a super fan, but I didn't know this until this suit. I didn't know that the original movie was actually based on a magazine article about the U.S. about U.S. Navy pilots. So, yes. In the 1980s, when Top Gun was in development, Paramount Pictures acquired the movie rights to that article and, of course, produced our beloved Top Gun. I mean, that's not an unusual story for Hollywood. There's a good other piece of media. They acquire the rights. They make the movie version. But according to a suit that was filed Monday in California federal court, Paramount is now, quote, thumbing its nose at federal copyright law. The writer of that original article has since died, but his family is the one that's sued here. Mm -hmm. And this is what they say in their complaint. According to the family, while the IP rights were signed over in the 80s for the original Top Gun, in 2018, the family notified the studio that they were actually terminating the studio's rights to the copyright. And that termination became effective in 2020. And so mm. in the current suit, they say this case arises out of Paramount's conscious failure to reacquire those film rights and the ancillary rights based on that copyrighted article. And the completion and release of Maverick is therefore a copyright violation. The family, again, you know, stressed that the sequel clearly came from, uh, derived from that original copyrighted story. And like I said earlier, they, they refer to it as thumbing their nose at federal copyright mm. law. Uh, the suit was filed at some just some days ago. Do we have a response yet from Paramount? I can guess what they said, but uh, sure, uh, just, yeah. I mean, yeah, tell us your that. guess is going to be correct. Their get their <laughs> response was saying this is all meritless. Um, you know, it is just a complaint. I would like to give that the normal grain of salt. We like to to add on top here. These are just allegations. Mm -hmm. We don't know how this is going to play out. Um, but I'd also like to know. You know, a ton of hit movies are sued over copyright issues. This isn't yeah. that surprising, especially one that had such a splashy drop and huge numbers when it came out of the gate. Yeah, and there has been some early analysis I saw actually on Good Morning America. The ABC legal analyst Dan Abrams went on and he talked about a number of defenses that Paramount could assert, one of which was actually very interesting because it deals with this like length of time when the, the termination happens and, and the rights return to the original holder. And he made the point, um, Abrams, when he was talking about this, about the fact that this movie got delayed considerably. Sure. And they could argue, I mean, depending on, I mean, and I don't know if they will do this, the suit just got filed, but like they could argue that 
the movie was effectively done at the end of 2019 when right, the before when that they still official ha- termination when, before it terminated. So there is that. I was also talking to a copyright expert. Let's call him Dill Bonahue. Yeah, to know let's, let's his let our thoughts. listeners puzzle out who that might have been. <laughs> and he made the point that termination in certain contexts doesn't apply to derivative works, meaning they would get the art the they would get the rights back for their article, but not for works based on the article. So that is just another defense you could assert. Again, it's all speculation. They can make a number of different yeah. arguments in their favor, but that's just sort of some day one analysis that's, that's kind of floating around I think those are interesting there. issues to think about, particularly for me, the one around um, the timing here, because yeah. I did start thinking about like, huh, it is a very long time since the original movie for us to just now have a sequel. And it's a little a little sleuthing around just to ask you this question, which is not legal at all, but just curious about how you feel about it. (laughs) What do you think about sequels to movies that were made more than like 10 years ago, let's say? Because I have a a short list I wanted to run past you of others that fit this bucket. Well, it's really just the sort of result justifies the process, right? Like you can say, we took a long time, we wanted to get the story right, and the movie was good. Or uh, we didn't really think about it that much at all, we realized that there was interest in this IP and we just kind of did a cash grab and the movie sucked. So, I mean, it can Here's cut both ways. Here's a short list. And I yeah, think okay. both of those are represented <laughs> on this list. Okay. Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Yeah. So, you can weigh in on how you feel about that, I guess. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I know that the, the new, the sequel trilogy is kind of like come under fire. I really just think they kind of botched the ending, but I do like The Force Awakens quite a lot. Okay. Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. If you don't remember that one, Shia LaBeouf is in it. Shia LaBeouf is in it. Um, that's one of the worst movies I've ever seen like in the last like 15 years, seriously. Okay. So. How about Godfather 3? Can I tell you something? I've, I've been on a real Godfather kick lately. It's not good. I think it's like, un, I think it's underrated though. I think it's like okay. unfairly maligned is like completely worthless. There are things in it like that definitely don't work, but it has like some cool ideas and I think it's like worth watching. Here's one that I hope we can agree is complete garbage. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> that movie is going to get... I don't I don't like that movie. I don't think it's good. Again, um, but Shia is also in that Sh- one. Shia is, yeah. Apparently there, just appears in sequels right and left. Some commonality there. That is going to undergo what I call the take cycle because there's a new one coming out. Sure. And this happens, this happens every time. There's And that, that itself is a legacy sequel because uh, Crystal Skull came out in like... 08 or 09 or something. Yep. And now the, the new one's And now another out. one. Exactly. Yeah, another I mean, that's another sure. long break. There's going to be, I guarantee you, there's going to be a take cycle that's like, you know, Crystal Skull, it's actually not that bad. It's It was that um, bad. I'm it was here to really terrible. It, yeah, yeah. I felt like it killed my childhood. It, I disliked it that much. Um, I didn't, I mean, it didn't, it didn't really affect the Indiana Jones legacy for me. I mean, but like, once you start with the Shia sort of swinging through, like swinging swinging through the juggle in the motor in the leather jacket with the with the digital apes. Digital apes also having a huge moment, as you know. <laughs> I just also don't know if you need aliens in inserted into the mythology of Indiana Jones. I did not love any of that. I can see how it was cool on the page. You're like covering different eras of like government paranoia, but yeah, it it, it really didn't work. The Kate Blanchett character very poorly. It's not good. None of it's good. Now, um, so, anyway, long yeah. story short, um, I think. It is interesting that any number of these could face additional legal challenges just because things took so long to progress. That's 
that's the mm-hmm. top line like concept that I found very fascinating about this one. Uh, we probably can't use Kenny Loggins to take us out here because of, again, pesky copyright violations. IP. Goodness uh, gracious. But just imagine it. Just imagine it in your mind uh, as we, <laughs> as we fade away here. They're hearing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's hearing it. Uh, great, great show as always, Amber. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks a lot, Alex, for being with me this week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Jack Queen. Our contributing reporters, Andrew Strickler, Pete Brush, and Adam Legit. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform that helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.